that you are all having a good week, taking lots of care for yourself, making time for yourself in these difficult times right now. And as always, I don't know how much to say or not say, but this is a platform for everybody. Black Lives Matter. I am a huge supporter and ally. I want that to be very clear while also not wanting to say too much or say too little. I just really want to make that clear and it's a hard balance for me to walk because I know that I have this platform. I know that people are listening and so I want to be very clear that I am an ally. At the same time, this platform is for us to focus on occupational therapy, speech pathology, physical therapy, but of course social justice is a huge part of that and it's so important to us as clinicians as well as our clients as well as the families we work with. It's important everywhere. So I am an ally. I am here. So I just want that to be explicitly clear for anybody listening that I am here. I'm still learning on my own. At the same time, I know that this is a public platform, but the emphasis here is more towards therapy. And I want to talk to you about kind of switching gears a little bit because a big thing of mine right now is working on self-love. I have realized that that's something I have not done for myself. In the 31 years that I've been on this earth, I have been trying to get my love from other people, other places, other things, through my job, through my family, through my friends, through my volunteer work, through so many outside sources without looking within. So self-love is something that I want to focus on more. If anybody has a self-love expert that they look up to, that they follow on social media, that they are a huge fan of, please let me know who you love and I will reach out to them and try and see if they can come on the podcast because I really truly feel like the more that we can love ourselves, the more that we can help other people. And until we can do that for ourselves, which hopefully most of you are doing, hopefully most of you have been doing this your whole lives and hopefully I'm the minority here. But just in case that's not the situation, because if you listen to my other episode on empaths, a lot of empaths, we are people pleasers. We want to keep the peace. We want to make people feel good, feel happy. And that comes at a cost sometimes. We will put other people's wants and needs above our own and we are left feeling drained and depleted and we need to practice self-love. So that is something in the future I am really going to be shifting gears on and trying to include more of. Even if it's just in pieces, I don't know. I It's something I feel so strongly about right now, about learning about. It is something I am in the extreme beginning stages of minuscule stages. So something I'm working on and therefore I'm super passionate about. I also would like to get your help. So I am looking for people who feel very passionate about different diagnoses. So a lot of our episodes have focused on different settings. So OTs in a skilled nursing home, OTs with hippotherapy, PTs in pelvic floor, PTs in the prison. And We've done a lot of different settings, which I've loved getting to know, and I think we'll still continue to do that, but I also would love to start talking about different interventions because I've been doing some continuing ed, which actually I go through MedBridge. This is like, I'm an affiliate for them, so I get a small percentage if you end up signing on and you'll get $150 off. So uh, there's a commercial later in the episode, but use the code SPILLTHEOT capital S, capital T, capital O-T, and it's all one word, but you'll actually save a ton of money. But more importantly, I've been on there to get some continuing ed since a lot of continuing ed has been limited in person. And this is a great resource, actually. They even have exercise plans, which you can pull and individualize for your patients. It's incredible. But I digress. So what I'm noticing is the information is incredible. But I feel like there's a true lack in all of the 
continuing ed that I've done for the past eight years of actual interventions. So what I'm interested in having people come on is say someone loves to work with people with hip replacements. So you would come on and you would share different interventions you do with people with hip replacements. You could talk about kitchen mobility, what you actually do in the kitchen, where you position yourself, where you position your client. Do you work on sidestepping? Are you working on walker safety? And like telling us specifically in detail what you're working on. And then are you doing anything in the parallel bars? Are you focusing more on precautions and how are you practicing precautions? Are you doing stuff with a reacher? Are you doing stuff with different adaptive equipment? And do you practice only in the room? Or are you doing more fun activities? Like I remember seeing an OT who spilled these little colored bears all over the floor, these tiny little plastic bears, and she would have the patient pick them up with the reacher. So I want people to come and share specific interventions that they're doing with their clients that they have found to be really successful and fun. So that way people can listen and just learn different treatment ideas because so many therapists are doing amazing and creative things and this is open to OTs, PTs, SLPs, and of course, I don't just mean the therapist, I also mean therapy assistants and rehab aides. So if you fall into any of those categories, I would love to know what you're doing. So you can email me at spilltheot at gmail.com. Let me know what diagnosis you would like to work on and this can be anything so you can choose stroke you can be specific and do left neglect for vision for a stroke or you can be broad and just do stroke and give me a couple ideas of what you're actually doing with your stroke patients I would love to have you on please consider it and no diagnosis is off the table so if you love working with hands if you love working with elbows if you love working with knees if you love working with cerebral palsy if you love working with multiple sclerosis literally any diagnosis or area that you are excited about and would like to help, please consider coming on. And today we are talking to a fabulous OT who works with the homeless population. This has been a highly requested interview. So without further ado, let's get her on here and she's going to tell us all things about community OT and the homeless population and what excellent work she has been doing in this area. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Andrea LaFleur, and I have been an occupational therapist for four years now, going on five. I graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago for both my master's and my my doctorate, my OTD. And I'm happy to share about my, what brought me into OT, um, how schooling went and where I've been since then. So um, basically I had been pursuing uh, physical therapy when I was an undergrad and was in a pre-PT program. thought that was definitely what I wanted to do, but I was also working with children with autism and adults with intellectual disabilities through a few different programs. And um, actually as an ABA therapist in behavioral modification, um, I learned I'm much more aligned in, in OT and I really love to see the, um, the marriage of those two frameworks. But working with children and um, people that just had, you know, many more challenges and just motor or physical challenges. I really wanted to be a part of looking at that broader perspective and supporting people and and doing more than than just movement. And um, my mom is actually an occupational therapist. So I didn't really know a ton of what it was until I did come home one day and said, I think I need to, I think I'm, I should be an OT. And, um, and she said, well, finally, I knew that that was going to happen, but she just didn't know uh, when and she wanted to let me find my own path. So um, I, uh, of course, my whole path, I've always wanted to kind of make my own path, but I ended up exactly in subacute rehab, just like she, <laughs> she is uh, when I graduated. So um, having that opportunity to um, to grow and learn um, more about occupational therapy. I, um, again, felt that pediatrics was my calling, and that was my my primary focus. That's where I did my um, internships pre-OT and uh, where my passion was. But as I started going through school and doing my field work, I ended up loving subacute rehab in a hospital setting where I did my uh, field work level 2B. And this led me to kind of change my, uh, shift my career path a little bit. And I ended up working in subacute inpatient rehab and acute care right out of school. So during that time, I really enjoyed working with people who, where their lives had just been turned upside down and 
things were completely different and uh, not being able to do things like go to the bathroom or communicate with family or go back to work. It really left people in a different state and it was an, a great privilege of mine to be able to work with people in that state and uh, in that setting. Interestingly, um, different than outpatient and day rehab, a lot of our patients uh, don't come back often to say, hello, therapist, thank you for what you did. Uh, some do, but oftentimes it's it was such a traumatic time in their life that um, it becomes a complete mental block of you know the time that they were in rehab. So my goal is always just to make uh, maximize quality of life at that point. And I really, um, really valued looking at cognition, looking at, you know, sensory processing and trauma histories, just, you know, seeing how, um, you know, people had much more than just what was written on their diagnosis. And I enjoyed working with people in, in that broader spectrum that had um, a multitude of uh, barriers, but um, but also goals. So um, that's where I made myself at home for a few years after school. Um, but I did end up finding that I felt I needed another kind of career jolt. And I, uh, I wanted to work with, you know, those that had been coming into our hospital, but not receiving, uh, not able to receive, you know, the services that they really needed. Um, those that were homeless, I felt that, um, you know, they would come in for the same issues again and again. And this happened really when I transitioned more to acute care and seeing just the number of people that could not qualify for rehab, which I felt was so important and valuable for the clients that I served. Um, so for those that I had worked with in acute care, it just felt like a band-aid on a systems barrier that people did not have access to OT when they when they left. Um, so if they couldn't get into OT, then they ended up back on the street and then likely back in our hospital again, um, and often with some major, major health concerns without the support to, to access that. And as a side note, I did also uh, work at a homeless shelter for it's been 14 years now, but I've been at the same homeless shelter up until the quarantine, the, the, the stay at home order um, where everyone's been switched to uh, working in shelters. I had, that had really been my, my home um, in some ways. And I, so I knew kind of what supportive services looked like. I knew what some of the barriers were in practice there. Um, and I really felt that that was where OT needed to be. Um, but of course, my initial attempt was to, to go to the shelter that I and the, the organization that I had been working with and um, let them know that, hey, I'm uh, here I am, I've graduated and I have an OT degree and this is what I can do. And they said, well, great, you know, you can volunteer in computer services. <laughs> and I was like, well, there's so much more in my head that we can do. Um, and so I, after quite a while of just trying to make connections and figure out where OT could fit in, um, I decided to go back for my doctorate in OT because I felt like I just needed that blocked time to um, really explore uh, this practice setting and take the time to develop it. So as a, um, a note there as well, um, those that go directly from the you know, entry-level masters to the, the, um, the doctorate, can often get it done in a year or somewhere around then. Um, I did take about a year and a half because I just really tried to get as much out of it as I could. And during that time, I was able to make connections with uh, various homeless organizations in Chicago in the area and, um, and just build relationships there, kind of start to explore what OT could do. Um, I really enjoyed um, sifting the research and learning about some of the, you know, the big names in the field. Um, I'm backtracking one more time <laughs> in Chicago in 2015, right when I graduated with my master's, um, I did have the chance to meet Carrie Marshall, who is an, an incredible OT working in the homeless field and con conducting research in Canada. So when she pre presented at the AOTA conference, I, um, you know, followed up with her right away and said, I, I'm not practicing here, but I want to. And then a few years later, she's continued to be my mentor and provide me guidance and um, and where this, this field could go. So she was really instrumental in uh, teaching me about strengths-based community practice, looking more at population health necessarily than just our one-on-one -on -one, uh, individualized assessments that we often conduct. And so uh, with her mentorship and also with, um, with my partner, uh, my OT partner, I say a collaborator, Nina Robbins, uh, she was actually a fieldwork educator of mine in school. And she has been working with me to develop research proposals and you know, review the research and, and explore exactly how OT can fit into these various settings. So um, in addition to all the, the faculty at UIC that have been so helpful and uh, several others along the way, I was able to really take the time to explore this opportunity. So uh, since the OTD, um, my work really focused on um, 
conducting participatory community assessments in supportive housing sites. And since then, a few students have, have taken this work and modified it for different practice settings across the country. Um, just a few, we're, <laughs> we're still, still building, um, and I'm still working to publish that information so it can be accessible for supportive housing organizations. Um, but in addition, um, I've had the chance to build a couple other relationships and actually establish a position for OT in a supportive housing site. So uh, post-OTD, um, I took some time to um, you know, continue to build those connections, volunteer at the organizations where I had conducted my Schweitzer Fellowship and my doctorate project. And um, upon that process, I was able to secure a part-time position as, a, as an OT providing direct service in a supportive housing site that has both um, permanent supportive housing and a single room occupancy type housing for people that were uh, deemed you know, least likely to survive homelessness and um, had to have a disability at least to live in the permanent supportive housing site. So it was a perfect fit I felt for OT to enter because people were often battling with such um, such profound barriers and um, a lot of these are environmental and systems barriers while also there were barriers of uh, cognitive deficits with co-occurring um, serious mental illness, substance use, and brain injury. So um, really being able to be a voice for um, kind of what oftentimes people identify as behaviors or um, you know things that people are doing that that um, are critiqued for you know not being effective for employment or things like that. Um, I was able to come in with a different perspective and and speak with the staff and and share you know well this you know seems like a you know response to trauma or a response to a brain injury and be able to kind of reconceptualize how uh, people are how people are viewed and and also work with people in um, a strengths based way that we can build from their abilities rather than focus on those deficits. And in addition to uh, to that position, which I've been um, I've been in since November of 2019, um, I am also working with Chicago Street Medicine, which is um, a very new organization, but doing incredible work with um, engaging students in various uh, universities throughout Chicago and um, continuing to expand, but working with with students to uh, not only develop their skills and develop the knowledge and research base that is needed to best support people that are unsheltered and homeless um, in Chicago, um, but also to just create and pave a new uh, practice setting where um, clinicians actually go out on the streets and go under Lower Wacker and go uh, where people are living and engaging in the streets. Um, to provide emergency medical care. Um, and if you can imagine, a, a large part of that was really just building rapport at the beginning and building relationships because of um, such a lack of trust and safety with existing um, healthcare systems. So uh, while it's a very uh, new position for me and it's not an official um, version of employment, it's all volunteers that go out on these runs, um, I have attempted to serve as the OT contact and bring in other OTs and um, try to expand access to OT in this capacity. So I think that's the majority <laughs> of what I've been working on. I've also worked with um, the Williams Consent Decree and conducting performance-based assessments for people living in nursing homes with serious mental illness that are looking to transition to the community. And I continue, I've continued to work uh, PRN at, at uh, the hospital in which I serve, and I'm also working to integrate OT into their medical respite program. Oh my goodness, you have done so much in just, what'd you say, five years? Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable, and it sounds like you didn't necessarily have someone that was showing you the ropes. It sounds like you were trailblazing a lot of this and following your heart and trying to see where it took you, and I think that's so brave and cool. Thank you. There's definitely been a lot of allies and supporters along the way. <laughs> so I want to back up just for a second. Can you share about your part-time job and what the treatments actually looked like when you were in that supported housing center? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm currently there still, um, which has been interesting because the services have been converted to online or virtual to some extent, which um, of course is a challenge and we're problem solving through that every day. Um, but the my initial role there was really just to, um, again, build rapport, build relationships with people because there just has, there have been a lot of, when, when people have experienced such trauma and um, in just general relationships, but also with systems and um, in shelters, for example, where people had to be, had to learn how to just fit in the system 
follow the rules. There really wasn't a lot of self-determination. There's not, there's often a lot of um, just stagnancy and um, as people transition into housing. And uh, Karen Marshall and her partners there too um, have just recently designed in this, this year um, a bridging uh, framework for OT as in a social justice approach to support people in transitioning from homelessness to housing. Um, this has really been the focus of what I do there. It's uh, supporting people as they transition from homelessness to housing because there are so many barriers people face in addition to just um, meeting basic needs and um, it's a whole different language there too. So instead of talking about the IEDL of grocery shopping, it's knowing how to access food pantries and where to go and when and what time and what to bring and how long you'll have to stand there and now you know maintaining six feet distance and, and knowing which places are open during this, this uh, you know, pandemic has been a huge transition too. But really I've learned a lot from, from the clients there because they've taught me just, you know, what a typical day looks like and, you know, what can, what, what barriers continue to be in place. But also too, we see a lot of that resilience. So really wherever I go, we're building on strengths and I've really been passionate about establishing more of a peer mentor kind of model for OT where instead of it needing to be, you know, me training one-on-one -on -one with life skills for everybody, there might be, you know, group opportunities or opportunities for people to teach each other. Um, and one, one uh, framework that, uh, Carrie Marshall had had you know in, informed me of was the asset-based community development approach, and this was this is by Kreitzman and McKnight, and they incorporate something called a capacity inventory, which is a way that I was able to learn from the clients, you know what. Uh, what skills, what passions, what gifts do they have that they were, what things were they born with that they're, they're good at? What are they so good at that they could teach other people? Um, you know, where can they um, be active agents in their life? And so this turned out to be not only kind of a resume builder, like a visual resume for our clients to see instead of having that done for them, which is traditionally done, um, they're able to identify and see what are the strengths that were brought in. Um, and we found out things like carpentry or, you know, playing saxophone or um, caregiving, parenting, housekeeping, that people had these baseline skills um, from their past life. And uh, because of that, they were able to uh, learn from each other and teach each other in some ways. So instead of it being, like I said, one-on-one -on -one OT directly conducting life skills training, it became, well, who has experience with this and how do we work with that? So facilitating the problem solving and, and peer, peer mentor relationship building throughout the building, people were able to uh, you know, learn from each other and also in a more empowering way than most systems where we're coming in to fix a problem. So really, it's been about capacity building for me there. Um, however, I that was the, the foundation of my doctorate work at this organization and um, where I've continued to develop. But now that I can provide direct one-on-one -on -one services, I'm also looking at, you know, functional performance-based assessments and um, conducting cognitive screens and um, identifying where it is that people are, you know, interested and motivated and going in their life. Um, we do have a lot of people that have engaged in active uh, substance use and have mental illness that's not necessarily treated. Um, so there are a lot of, um, definitely people are experiencing a lot and facing a lot, um, especially during this time. Um, but the pervasive boredom and um, lot, the lasting effects of trauma um, really have a deep impact on just daily functioning. So um, as I mentioned, I guess to summarize, it's you know starting with just that building rapport, building relationships and building trust, establishing um, a safe and trauma-informed um, environment for that. Um, intervention to begin. I have been, it's been interesting because I, I'm not coming in with a direct, let's conduct your initial occupational therapy intervention or, you know, evaluation and starting from there, it's really been, you know, hey, come and join a group. Let's, let's talk and see where things are going. And then if and when things are disclosed, I'll say, hey, any chance you want to follow up and we can, you know, maybe talk a little bit more, you know, deeply about some of these things. And that's when I might conduct my initial OT evaluation um, to get a bigger picture of um, what people are going through. And interestingly too, not everybody discloses all of their health conditions to, um, to the staff in the organization. So it's even further uh, interesting in this role to not have a diagnostic list of, you know, what we're going in with, but a lot of people have co-occurring, um, you know, neurological conditions, orthopedic conditions, um, in addition to their uh, mental illness and substance use possible histories. Um, so it, I think in addition to those um, individual, you know, working on one-on-one -on -one individual in interventions, I've also been looking into really fostering a sense of community integration and supporting people to be a part of their broader community. Um, all of these things, of course, have, tra have transitioned with uh, the pandemic. So um, currently we are all working from home 
as a staff, um, and I'm facilitating three, um, well, four actually, um, virtual OT support groups. Um, so that's just kind of the broad term, but we just have a conference call line that people can dial in um, during that that you know time. And there's there are different topics. Some of them are mental health and empowerment. Um, Wednesdays are uh, research or res resource and networking. Um, and then Mondays are um, more of the physical health. So we, we used to take a walk on Mondays and as a group and um, engage in some, it was called movement and meditation. And so now that's uh, converted to being, to attempting to create a, a version of that via conference call line. Um, so we're working through that. We're also trying to start a women's empowerment group um, just to address the unique needs of that population. Um, and I did recently have the opportunity to supervise a few OT students who were able to develop some group protocols and accessible education resources for the clients during this time um, to support people in just having adequate information on what's changing day to day and so that people can stay in the forefront of that. Wow, everything you're doing just sounds so valuable and important and I love it. I'm curious how like your first month went on the job because I'm trying to imagine walking into a position that wasn't established before and I'm just curious what you did. Like how did you navigate building rapport and how did you decide what groups to run and how many to run and how did you communicate with other staff members to kind of carve out your own space in that environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually kind of, I'd say, three parts to that. Because when I first entered, I was an OTD student and not employed. So during that time, what I had started, I started with an advanced practicum, which is an opportunity to kind of just be there. I was allowed to just be on site, get to know people, interview staff, uh, talk with clients, attend existing programming. Um, so just being a part of the community and not coming in as this with this expert cap of I'm here to bring in my perspective and here to change everything. Um, I really wanted to come in, um, you know, as humble as possible and culturally relevant and learn the culture because each each supportive housing site has a different culture too. It's not a one size fits all for sure. And having the chance to get to work with two different organizations um, simultaneously was really valuable because they were just different cultures and um, and priorities there and also different kind of service um, systems as well. Um, so that initial that was the initial part of just um, getting to know people and I was able to then in order to bridge the time of writing my IRB and um, that you know took quite a while given uh, working with a vulnerable population um, it's a little more challenging to to get through that so even though it was a strengths-based and empowerment focused um, project so over the summer during that break and then working with the IRB I just volunteered uh, running a, a mental health and um, it was titled mental health support group but it was uh, geared to whatever the group had had brought up so some people um, were really passionate about finding employment so we talked about reasonable accommodations on the job and you know what are essential job functions what aligns with my my passions and goals um, and interestingly that's kind of a hole in the research that we have found it's a little tangent again I apologize but we're finding that while there's tons of information on what um, uh, you know, supported employment could look like um, in order to address the specific needs of this population in supportive housing with a history of homelessness, hist possible, you know, serious mental illness or substance use, and additional cognitive, uh, you know, challenges that there are not a lot of tailored interventions specifically for this. And there's a lot of research that says um, this is what OT should do, um, but it's, but we don't have a description or a, a guidebook as to how that looks. So um, I've attempted that initial um, aspect and one of my students did do an evidence-based uh, project on that and um, also my students at UIC have tackled that question as well just to kind of find an, any possible aspect of like what this what the research has says about what a role is exactly um, so that was kind of the the bridge and during that time um, for example I was able to build relationships with with people during that time I had one person in particular who became a little cold and you know was uh, was evidently you know frustrated by the concept of talking about mental health and later disclosed a trauma history to me that then led to kind of um, her flourishing in in OT programming so you know she had not really disclosed her story and for, for decades um, she was angry frustrated she expressed her anger 
anger and, you know, what she was going through. And then instead of focusing on anger management per se, you know, first it, we had to kind of untap that, you know, wow, you, like you, a lot has happened, you know, you, you've gone through a lot, you know, and just validating that and recognizing that and um, kind of destigmatizing mental health. So that, that really served as a bridge and um, building connections with people that, um, you know, that did have disabilities that were empowered um, and, and had identified in that way. Cause a lot of our clients actually don't identify as having a disability while most I think of our OT clients do. So building those relationships at that initial state um, was really important. And those kind of became my champions in the project where it wasn't necessarily that I was the one knocking on every client's door or building that individual connection, but they might've said, hey friends or hey neighbors, come, let's come to this group. And so it, it served as a culture to invite more people in to engage and participate. So during the doctorate project, um, we really were able, we eventually engaged, um, I believe 64 P, like individuals at some point in the project, which was huge. And some only came once, um, but a good, we had a good eight people that served as our, our leaders or our mentors in that project. And then there was a gap. So I, again, just kept volunteering at least once a week to keep my face familiar and, you know, let the clients know that I wasn't going anywhere. And within, I think, five months of graduating, the COO came to me and said, Andrea, we have a grant. We have this much money. You start today. and um, You know, let me know what this will get us. And so um, what that equated to, of course, because it was an immediate um, grant and I was already working full time, it meant working around the clock for about two months. And I only worked one day a week uh, when I started there. Um, then two months later, starting in January, I was able to co to start working three days a week for a total of 16 hours a week. So it's uh, definitely not full time. And there's so much more that I want to do, um, continuing to apply for grants and hoping to expand that possibility. But um, when I initiated the OT role, that did require a whole nother level of onboarding. So um, you know, I had to come in and kind of the staff knew who I was, but not all knew exactly what OT was and what that could do. Um, so I did create a bunch of information and resource sheets about, you know, like a, a visual version of what OT is for clients, a more specific as to what OT looks like in supportive housing for the staff, um, attending staff meetings and explaining what I do. Um, even three, four months after starting, I had, um, you know, a case manager come and say, Andrew, can I give you a referral? <laughs> yes, that's what the referral form is for, you know. Um, so it took a lot of um, um, you know, time to really invest in in building those those relationships, and um, luckily, I also had the support of local organizations that have OTs in uh, you know very very um, unique community mental health settings. And uh, they were willing to share, you know, what, what did their screening form look like? What did their, um, what, yeah, what, what did documentation look like and things like that. So I've kind of created a merge of my documentation with what the organization was doing, kind of a modified SOAP note, and they call it a DAP note. Um, and I just add my subjective on top. <laughs> but um, I've had the opportunity to, you know, merge a lot of different um, frameworks and resources that um, people were very kind and supportive to share with me. Wow, this is just so great that you've been able to do all of this. The, the money that's funding the OT program is through this grant that the COO was able to find? Yes, so it was actually part of their Illinois, their state grant. So because it's state funding, it is renewable, which means I have guaranteed funding for upcoming years as long as nothing major changes, um, as long as the organization stays stable and consistent, as long as they keep case management, they'll be able to keep OT. Awesome, that's comforting. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's not a lot of hours. It's actually decreasing because my original um, bucket was for eight months and now it's for that year. So um, my hours will be decreased, but I'm waiting on another grant and hopefully continuing to apply to increase my, my hours there. And also working to, you know, there are some neighboring organizations too that I've consulted with and I'm hoping to create um, OT positions. And the um, challenge there, of course, is uh, finding OTs at that point. My hope is really to just create OT as a presence in this practice setting um, and continuing to build an evidence base as well. But that's also where um, OT students and field work come in because as OTs are trained in this, you know, this perspective, this framework and learning these skills hands-on, the hope is that when they graduate, they'll have these skills and be able to step into some of these new positions. So um, that's another aspect of what I've been hoping to do is to continue to expand opportunities for OT. That's incredible. And I'm so glad that you're doing that. So you don't bill out for any services. It's basically all funded through grants. Is that what you're finding in other programs that you've been talking to? They're all different. So some of them do this where they, um, 
you know, they'll have an OT on site and they're just um, integrated into a supportive, supportive services uh, network. And others will um, bill for Medicaid, for example, as a qualified mental health provider. So some of our sites do that. And it's something that I, I advertise and show and support when I'm talking to organizations that, hey, this is an option, you know, that it doesn't have to be just a, you know, a paid position for who, you know, without being able to show um, outcomes or impact, um, which of course, that's a whole part of what I'm designing too. But um, for them to be able to bill for that is obviously it's more sustainable for the organization. So um, it is something that I'm I'm definitely encouraging and supporting going forward, but our organization currently doesn't have um, a foundation to build Medicaid. So if the organization did, then I would join. Um, but until that comes, it is as it is today. It's so much to navigate and I'm just giving you so much credit because I just feel like my brain wouldn't be able to figure it out. And I'm just so impressed that you've been navigating it. And it sounds like you've had some really good mentors to help you along the way, but you yourself are really being a mentor for so many along your path. Definitely. Can you share a little bit about what you're doing as the adjunct professor? Hey everybody, I am so genuinely excited to tell you about MedBridge. So MedBridge is a continuing ed site and they have tons of continuing ed courses all available online. You can stream them at your own pace. They also have home exercise plans, which are incredible. You can literally build your own plan with pictures that can perfectly suit whatever client you're working for. It's honestly so awesome. And you get unlimited CEUs. And these CEU courses are just really intriguing and exciting. Like it's, I've done continuing ed online in the past and these ones that they select are just very much in line with what I find interesting. And I feel like you might find them interesting as well. So are you struggling with finding the resources for your time for CEUs with almost 2000 accredited evidence-based streaming courses, live CEU webinars, MedBridge is your all-in-one solution. And actually, if you use my code, it's spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT. So spill the OT, one word, capital S, capital T, capital OT. You can get $175 off of your year-long subscription, which is awesome. I mean, that's like significant amount of money off. So if you are interested, please go check it out. Again, use the code spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT, all one word. All right. I really hope that you go check it out. Enjoy. Definitely. Yes. So um, at UIC, I'm uh, teaching an introduction to occupational therapy course for the undergrad students. And I then embed um, myself as a facilitator in our synthesis problem-based learning courses at UIC for the master's program. So it allows me, I really enjoy the spectrum that I'm able to teach there because in introduction to occupational therapy, I'm able to kind of establish a foundation for like OT and a social justice framework, really focusing on social determinants of health and areas that, um, you know, are not necessarily the foundation of what we were taught in school. Um, oftentimes we're taught about the environment, but then that for me, I always felt like, but how, you know, like how do I address food insecurity? How do I address, um, you know, the fact that populations are marginalized and don't have access to resources that they need? Um, you know, that there are food deserts and pharmacy deserts, and there are just all these barriers, especially in, in segregated Chicago. We just have so many built um, systems around discrimination and which significantly leads to, you know, the disparities we see. And so my hope is that, you know, working with the undergrad students to, to, to really just lay a foundation for what, what is OT and what could OT be at its finest? Um, what is the, you know, what do we say that we can do and what could that look like? And then where are we developing? So it's uh, recognizing that, you know, yes, we have OTs in established practice settings. We have pediatrics, we have hospitals, we have nursing homes, we have, you know, just this broad um, array of, of opportunities, but there's also, there, there are also areas where we can be continuing to push in. So I, I always have, you know, OTD students come in that are doing really creative projects to bring that into the course and, um, you know, provide that opportunity for students to see what might this look like if I was doing an intervention to address social determinants of health or, um, you know, cancer and, and rehab or 
in my case, OT and homeless settings. So um, it was, I think, one of my favorite activities with my undergrads this year. I broke them up into four different groups into different homeless practice settings that I'm working in, and each one had to decide design what would OT look like in that practice setting. So they had areas like unsheltered homeless, um, pop-up clinics at a shelter, um, supportive housing, and medical respite. And it was so incredible to see just students brainstorm, you know, what that could look like. And we do that in a variety of ways with different age groups, different conditions, um, things like that. But trying to support the students and being able to develop what, what this could look like versus fitting in a box of what OT maybe looks like in this at a slice in time right now. Um, since we're in such a, a really incredibly evolving profession that we're able to adapt to society's needs and really grow and expand as society changes. And it's exciting to see how our relevance can be expanded. And so I, that's my main hope in that that uh, course is to really just um, inspire hope and excitement for the field and support students in, in, um, in taking those next steps. And then in my uh, master's courses, what I really enjoy is we do case-based learning. So um, the students will have a, a, I'll have a group of seven or eight students and they will have a case study to work with for several weeks. And that involves, um, you know, they might have a brain injury case or a cerebral palsy case or, you know, a hospital and brain injury case. Um, and based on my work in the hospital, really that's been kind of where I've, I've fit into um, to facilitate um, a brain injury community course or, or um, component of the course. Um, and so I, I get to work with the students their second level of the first year and their first semester of second year in this course and um, work in a really hands-on way. So I really enjoy that. That's incredible. So I just love what you're doing all around for everything. I guess what would be your biggest piece of advice for somebody who's already an OT in the field and they're not necessarily prepared to go back to school for a doctorate, but they want to try and help this population and they don't truly know where to begin. What would be your best advice for first steps for them? That's a big question. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> um, I think initially um, the first step is really to, to um, you know, build relationships and connections. Um, I did not feel that I was effectively able to do that until pursuing my OTD and having a purpose to step into organizations. I wanted to make those connections and I, I know some people have successfully done it in the community, but for me I felt um, a little disempowered at the start when I was just by myself. So I think building connections with other OTs that are doing this work, um, connecting. I've had several students meet me at conferences and say, hey, can we talk more about this? Or other um, other people that are just doing similar work that say, hey, can we write on this? Um, and just being able to um, make establish those those relationships that we can. Um, that's you know kind of find it foundational to this work across the board, I think. But being able to um, establish those connections where we can build together and learn from each other and learn about what works. Um, it definitely helps to keep that connection with um, the university in which we graduate from. Um, oftentimes there's at least one OT that's doing something regarding community or mental health or homelessness and um, being able to connect and, and volunteer to some capacity can be of value. Um, and the next layer I would say is connecting with the institutions and the systems that are currently doing it. So, um, you know, there are, um, you know, tons of, of uh, street medicine teams um, across the country where, um, you know, a good majority of the states um, have have some level of, of contact with the homeless population in that way. Um, and being able to integrate OT in that, that context is definitely an area of opportunity. And, um, also to, for me, my, my first connection was really working with my hospital because they had created a homeless work group and wanted to address, um, to provide better care for homeless, you know, populations that were entering their, um, their system. And so um, on that committee, you know, I'm able to talk about trauma-informed care and talk about the role of OT and talk about the systems barrier that they face when they're kicked out of the doors, you know, um, talk about the health conditions that are reoccurring. And luckily, this was a team of people that, that saw that and were passionate about making a difference in that. So I've been just volunteering on that committee for over a year now, and that's been an opportunity to, um, to kind of really showcase what OT can do and bring in a unique perspective. We recently had a situation, for example, where a case manager said, yeah, I got these stick-on grab bars for this client and I was like oh no <laughs> so you know being able to talk about like let's talk about some other options that might be you know low tech and safe to use but you know <laughs> we could support this client so um it's kind of um and of course I always have to you know give the disclaimer like I have not evaluated this person can we connect them with the OT that has evaluated them in acute care or in home health or in rehab um to get those specific recommendations so I'm really trying to you know stay in that context where I'm showing what OT can do um but also trying to find those right channels that um, people have access to OT in 
traditional ways. Um, but on this team, I've been able to, um, you know, be supported in, in I've, I've recently just, Nina and I have written a proposal for the organization to um, hopefully do a research project to show what are the, the unique performance and function needs of um, people that have been homeless and have that medical complexity that, you know, where OT can come in and do that, that functional and skills-based assessment to identify where breakdown occurs. Um, so we're hoping to initiate that and that has all come because of connecting with the right person and saying, hey, Andrew, you should join this committee that exists. Um, so connecting with those groups and, and building those partnerships is, is uh, crucial. I think it's rare to see an OT wearing so many hats in one facility. And what I mean is, you know, usually I think we do tend to stay in our own boxes. And I know in the community setting, it's a little bit more fluid. And it just sounds like if you're able to be kind of open-minded and try out different things, then that will make for a successful OT in the setting. Definitely, yeah. I think it's it's um, challenging to wear only a physical rehab cat, cap or um, only a mental health um, or psych, you know, cap. I think that integration of the practice settings is is really important. Um, and interestingly, my hospital does not have a formal OT position for their behavioral health setting. Um, they they have OT and acute care that transfer over and are receive referrals if there's like a hand injury of some sort. But it's really interesting. So I've of course, anytime there was a psych eval, I'm like, please, can I go? Because <laughs> so, that was oftentimes we were meeting a lot of you know our, our clients that really were you know in a revolving door of just coming back into the hospital and um, and luckily that you know the behavioral health services are so integrated and 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 um, very well supporting you know the population and um, connecting them to community resources but um, all of the, the organization just has a passion to make it better and to be a part of that solution so um, definitely as an OT it's really wonderful that we have such a broad skill set um, and one area I didn't mention but I actually was able to integrate my peds and autism background with um, you know inner support housing site we've had two people with autism one is a teenager and one um, is as an adult and being able to have the OT cap again and integrate my past experiences has also been great so what's what's wonderful about this setting um, while unfortunate you know that really nobody is immune to homelessness and anybody could end up in that in that situation um, you know that because of that it's such a diverse population to work with and really really meaningful um, to be able to meet such such really incredible people that have been through a lot, but are, are putting one step forward um, to continue on in life. And so it's, it's really just um, humbling and, and it's my privilege to be, to be in the setting that I'm in. Wow. So you really are integrating so many aspects of OT. In mm -hmm. this yeah. Yeah. Of course it makes me think sometimes like maybe I need a PEDS job. Maybe I want to you know, get a, a board certification in mental health or things like that. You know, I've definitely explored wanting to, to gain more specialty because I, as I mentioned, only five years out and primarily doing physical rehab as my, my background. Um, I definitely want to continue to explore and, and gain my skill, build my skill sets there. I love your motivation and your drive. And it is just so empowering to see that, there's people out in the field like you who are just, you know, striving for more and bigger and thinking globally. And it's great. Thank you. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share that you think people might find interesting? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but um, I, uh, I'm just grateful for this opportunity. And um really excited to to be in such a such a wonderful field um, I think if um, I, I actually encourage my students that when you feel uncomfortable with what you're learning in OT school like you feel like you know oftentimes I think we we say that we're working in a social justice or occupational justice framework um, or we're looking at a social model of disability and not necessarily just the medical model um, I feel often we're taught about it but it's not thoroughly embedded in the curriculum that we teach um, just across the board in our field. And so when my students come to me and say, you know, I'm just, I don't know how I feel about this. This doesn't sit right with me. I say, keep that discomfort because that's going to be your driving force to change the profession and to con continue making sure it's growing and, and um, expanding in the ways that it should. So I think oftentimes we as OTs are stuck fitting into systems that are ex existing and built, um, but we have so much opportunity to be innovators in the, in the world and um, in different, different settings to expand outside of our traditional medical approach um, to, to improve the lives of those that we work with. That's really deep. I was actually talking to one of my friends and a little bit of my background is kind of from the gate. I was a travel therapist and then I worked per diem and then eventually I ended up in the school systems. But I think from the get-go, because I was always kind of this contracted employee and kind of on the outskirts, I never really 
feel like I myself built as big of a client-centered basis as I wish that I had because just of the systems, I didn't have enough time for it. And I think your first couple of years can end up being so informative. So now, like, as I'm talking to therapists so often on this podcast, I'm really reflecting on my own practice and my own thoughts and just realizing that any OT who's been working for a couple of years or even brand new, it's never too late to like really step back and think about how you're processing everything. And, you know, there's so many parts of OT in schools that I feel like I just never carried over into practice. And for a while I was kind of blaming it on the system, but it's really up to me to like step back and and be the one that's integrating it. And I think you are perfect proof of that. Oh, thank you. Well, it's interesting, you know, when I I did do the Schweitzer Fellowship, I had the opportunity to be in a healthcare justice kind of framework. And, you know, there's a lot of research pushing to say that the biggest changes are institutional. So I think it also is important that not only that we are advocating for it on the front line, but that we're also contributing to build systems that are just different, you know, that are able to um, expand their bandwidth so that we can actually do the work that we are trained to do. Um, it's it's really interesting to be, you know, in a hospital setting, for example, where you're discouraged to do mental health. And then when you're a qualified mental health provider and you're, you can't bill for <laughs> physical rehab, it's really interesting that we are, as a, a field, are just so fragmented in where we're placed and positioned. Um, so I think it's also important that we just continue to advocate for, um, you know, spaces that allow us to do our best work. Um, so we can really be of impact in that way. Exactly. I'm not great with my words, but I think fragmented is the perfect description of how I feel I've been treating and how I've kind of been trained to treat. And the expectations of the facilities I work in is like, you know, this is your narrow scope and we're only going to reimburse for this small piece. And I think you're absolutely right. It's, It's just fragmented and it doesn't have to be if we can advocate for it the other way so thank you honestly this podcast is just teaching me so much so I love talking to people like you and it's just wonderful thank you Oh, thank you for your service and and putting this together for our field. It's an incredible opportunity to learn from each other about what's all going on out there in the field. So thank you for all the work that you do for this opportunity. It's all of you guys, honestly. I just put it together. (laughs) But if you could do it again, would you send yourself to OT school? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Um, Like I said, I think I, um, I just tend to be, tend to like to I, I don't know if ruffle feathers is the right word. <laughs> I, just, I tend to like to go against the grain. And so um, what's what's wonderful about OT is at its core, looking at its phys- philo- philosophical, you know, um, principles and tenets, you know, I, I fully align with what OT is and should be. Um, I became quickly disempowered with the system in which we're often put. Um, but it's it's uh, just really kind of led me to want to be, um, want to continue to make waves in the field and um, expand roles for OT because we just have such a, such a, a such possibility to um, to just r- uh, provide different types of services and um, not have everything be about fixing a problem, but more about, um, you know, as AOTA promotes, but living life to the fullest um, and not feeling that we have to fix a disability or change a person to do that, but that anybody and anyone where they are in life um, can get to can get to somewhere, you know, in that direction of where they want to go. And I think OTs are really just um, those those change agents and and foundational in that in that work. So most definitely, I would be I would be an OT again. <laughs> That's incredible. And again, I just think everything that you're doing is incredible, and I can't wait to see what you end up doing. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, do you have any social media or anything that you want people to find you on or? track you on? You know, I don't, but if you Google my name, um, hopefully someday publications will come up. That's been where I'd say I'm lagging the most and working toward. Um, so um, yeah, I, I will be there. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thank you again for doing this. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. I am sending you all a lot of love, a lot of fun, a lot of excitement for your week ahead, and I hope they have a great week. As always, if you would like to come on the show or if you have questions, concerns, please email me at spilltheot at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at spill underscore the underscore OT. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Have a great week.